News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The House January 6th committee's final report asserts Donald Trump criminally engaged in a multi-part conspiracy to overturn the lawful results of the 2020 presidential election and failed to act to stop his supporters from attacking the Capitol, concluding an extraordinary 18-month investigation. This was the investigation into the former president and the insurrection that took place two years ago. They've now released the 814-page report after the panel interviewed more than 1,000 witnesses. Well, Jennifer Johnson is a Global News Washington reporter, and she joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jill. Take us through, if you can, what we know now. We know the final report from that U.S. House committee investigating January 6th is out. What have we learned from this? Well, this is the biggest congressional report to come out since Watergate. Uh, and so it, it's, an, it's basically a 800-plus um, page report, and it concludes that one person was behind the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, and that was Donald Trump that he encouraged his supporters to attack the Capitol, that he perpetuated the falsehood that the election was stolen from him, that actually he was the elected president, not Joe Biden, and that basically he orchestrated this attack on the Capitol. And so the finger in this report, after basically 18 months of investigation and a 1,000 hours of hearings, um, basically points the finger at one man, like I said, Donald Trump. And was there any kind of, I, I don't like to use the word bombshell, but I know uh, reading through some of the testimony from a former top aide to the White House chief of staff and others that testified, and, and like you said, all of this has now come to the point where it's pointing at Donald Trump. But was there any particular testimony that stands out for you? I don't know if there's any particular testimony. I think what stood out to me the most was how hard he pressured state election officials to overturn their elections in the individual states. It was hundreds of phone calls that the president and his allies made to pressure um, people like in Arizona and Georgia to simply overturn their votes, to change the vote. And I think that was what was most uh, startling to me. And also the fact that Vice President Mike Pence was in the Capitol and He's the vice president of the United States, and and the president didn't really care and in some ways encouraged the crowd to go after him. I mean, when they were saying, hang Mike Mike Pence, you know, he was saying maybe they should. And so I think those two things stood out to me the most, that um, just the length that they, they took to try to overturn the election was just amazing to me. I just was shocked when I was reading, you know, how many phone calls and how many emails and just hundreds of them to try to overturn the election. And I was looking at individual states. And it's uh, the conclusion as well, some of the comments saying that this gravely threatened democracy, that it put the lives, like you mentioned, uh, of Mike Pence, it put the lives of American lawmakers at risk. Now that this committee has found that that blame squarely lies with Donald Trump, what happens now as far as where does the report go or, or what's that process? Do you know? So the committee has recommended 
that uh, the Justice Department filed criminal charges against Donald Trump. Now, the Justice Department is doing its own separate investigation. Five people died in this attack. And so the Justice Department has had its own ongoing investigation. The committee, a number of the committee members are lawyers. They have recommended, and they have had advice from other lawyers, have recommended that at least three and possibly four criminal charges uh, be filed against Donald Trump. And so now now it's in the hands of the Justice Department to decide whether that should happen. And my guess would be that the Justice Department will make some kind of decision early in the new year. And do we know at this point, or is it too early to say, I guess it would depend what happens with this, do we know if or what impact this could have on Donald Trump's plans to run again for president? Well, it's going to be very difficult for him. He can continue running for president, but he's, if he's criminally charged, his, his campaign is not going to go anywhere. Um, and because there's always the chance that he'll be found guilty and therefore you know, have to serve prison time or, you know, pay the price. And so it will greatly derail. If the Justice Department uh, files criminal charges against Donald Trump, it will greatly derail his campaign for president. Now, you know, if some of the high ups in the Republican Party are hoping that Donald Trump's campaign does derail, um, you know, I think there's people like Mitch McConnell and others who have had it with Donald Trump and his controversies and, you know, all the crazy headlines and wants the party to move into a different direction. Um, and so there's, you know, I, I'm not sure that there, there's many in the Republican Party that want to see Donald Trump in jail, but they don't want to see Donald Trump president in 2024. Right. And I guess, too, we'll wait and see as more reaction to this is coming in now that this part has concluded as far as this committee investigation. Like you said, this the Justice Department still investigating. But I, I'm curious and we'll have to wait and see, I suppose, like you said, kind of that fracturing in the Republican Party. But there must also be people who are still Trump supporters who will still believe that the election was stolen and will still question, will will not believe the findings of this committee. Right. It is amazing to me and others who report in the United States that people in these states still believe that Donald Trump won the election in many states, but particularly in places like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, even though there were people on the ballot, Republicans, who were elected, same ballot. You know, the ballot wasn't tampered in one in one way and it was tampered in the other, for example, or the ballots were lost, but they weren't lost enough so that Pat Toomey couldn't be reelected as the senator from the Republican senator from Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, it's amazing the conspiracy that some Trump supporters believe that, you know, how far this went, that the Attorney General Bill Barr, you know, was in on it and the Justice Department was in on it and the, the um, FBI was in on it, and Homeland Security. All of these departments investigated potential voter fraud. They found no voter fraud. They didn't find widespread voter fraud. They basically found no voter fraud. And so these Trump supporters think that all these Trump-appointed people like Bill Barr and Christopher Wray, who was head of Homeland Security, that they were all in on it. You know, And it's, it's mind-boggling that they still think this man won the election, that the Republican... Uh, attorney general in various states, various, you know, states like Arizona was in on it. Like they all wanted to, you know, if you will, screw over Donald Trump. I I don't know. I, I, I have no answers for how people can still believe this. It's baffling to me. 
Well, it's certainly an interesting report and interesting some of uh, the information coming out of this. Jennifer, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Okay, Joel, thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Many people are asking, how long is it going to take to fix the backlog and to get things back on track at YVR? Well, according to John Gradick, who is a faculty lecturer in the Department of Aviation Management at McGill University, that backlog could take at least a week to clear. And John Gradick joins us on the line to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, my pleasure to be here this morning on this yucky day in Vancouver. Wow. <laughs> That's a, a good word for it. It's cold. There's some fresh snow. There's freezing rain. It's not a great situation. And we're seeing more delays, more cancellations on top of what we already saw at YVR. When you look at that, how do you kind of predict or look at how we get out of this and back to uh, operations that are not like what we're seeing right now? Oh, well, I think that, you know, the airlines basically have to make sure that they have the airplanes in the right place at the right time to fly the schedule that they're proposing. And uh, with this disruption in Vancouver, we saw since Tuesday that airplanes are stuck in Vancouver or they're waiting to get to Vancouver from Calgary or Winnipeg or Toronto. Uh, so the airplanes are out of whack. They're out of balance. Uh, and it, it is a finely you know, tuned orchestra that has to be in place in order for the schedule to work. And uh, it'll take a bit of time to reposition aircrafts and to make sure that you've got the right flight attendants and the right uh, crew, flight crews in the right place at the right time. So it, it's a delicate balance. It usually takes, typically on a, on a, on a snowstorm disruption, um, you know, of this magnitude out east, uh, Toronto, Montreal, usually takes them about two or three days. But I think what I saw in Vancouver and the level of disruption and the level of chaos in Vancouver, uh, it'll take a few more days. And I would imagine, too, because we're not talking about just any day of the week where there's travel or it's normal volumes. We're talking about what is the busiest time of the year. Yeah, you're talking Christmas week. And if there's one week that you didn't want this storm to happen, happen, this is it. Planes are full. Fares are high. Passengers want to get to where they want to be quickly. So it is a bad week for the storm to happen. Not that we can go back in time and change anything, but we did hear from the CEO of the airport yesterday saying they had learned from what happened earlier this week and they're making sure that it doesn't happen again. She was talking specifically about in some cases where passengers were left for hours, up to 13 hours in some cases, sitting on planes on tarmacs. But is there something the airport could have done, do you think? And I I get as well, they're saying that more snow (laughs) fell than what they were anticipating. But is there something they could have done to be proactive to, 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 so that it didn't get this bad? Well, I think that, you know, Vancouver to get Vancouver airport to get 37 centimeters of snow is is an unusual event, but Vancouver does get snow. Um, And for the Vancouver airport, authority to say that, you know, they weren't prepared or they weren't ready for this one, I think is a little, you know, disingenuous in terms of looking at the preparation you need at an airport to prepare for winter. It's not like flying in July. And so you will get rain, you will get freezing rain, you will get snow. Uh, I don't, you know, my my opinion is that they weren't ready. Uh, you know, they, they weren't ready for the, for the extent of the snow, uh, for them to run out of something called glycol, which is what they use it to de-ice airplanes. To me, is, you know, unthinkable. That that should never have happened. 
Um, you know, winter is winter, and you have to de-ice airplanes, and you, have, you cannot run out of light balls. So I, I think that there, there, there was not enough planning done by the Vancouver Airport Authority, and I'll throw in the airlines in there as well, in terms of really understanding what is the capacity of the airport to handle flights. Um, you know, we saw the same situation happen at Pearson and at Trudeau in July and August, um, and, we're, and, we're, and we're living through the same thing in Vancouver in December. And I think that, you know, we've got to make sure that when we, in fact, do uh, face disruption, however it may be, whatever you, whatever you want to uh, define as disruption, that the airlines and the airports basically have done the contingency planning needed to make sure that the operations run as smoothly as possible. And uh, the running out of glycol, I know that became a bit of, of a point of whether or not they actually ran out. The airport saying, yes, they were running low at one point, but they restocked and saying that they didn't actually run out. But it does kind of go to a bigger issue, doesn't it? Like you've touched on, and that's being prepared. Yes, there was more snow than anticipated, but was it so much snow that they shouldn't have still been on top of it? Yeah, and I think, I think that's the issue. You know, the issue is, you know, the, the airport... Um, you know, has got a lot of tools, a lot of t- technology that they have in the planning side of the business. And I think that, you know, the, the question would be when it comes to actually operating the airport, um, you know, those tools are useless. Uh, if you don't have the right experience on the staff in terms of running an airport during a disruptive operation like an airport. And I think, you know, Vancouver Airport, as have other airports across Canada, laid off a lot of people with lots of experience in the last three years as a result of COVID. And we're seeing the results of that lack of experience as we go through these these disruptions in Eastern Canada as well as in Vancouver. Is it a bit of a domino effect as well, though, in that we did hear from the airport, there were staff members, and, and same with BC Ferries, and I think just about everywhere, there were staff members that couldn't get to work because their roads hadn't been plowed, they didn't perhaps have winter tires. There were a number of reasons, weather-related, why staff members couldn't get to work, and that, what I would imagine, causes a bit of a domino effect because if you don't have the staff to do these essential jobs to keep the operations going, what are you going to do? Well, you know, my, my one comment to that is we had 40,000 passengers make it to the airport in spite of the snowstorm, in spite of all of the weather conditions. So if 40,000 passengers can make it to the airport, um, you know, five or 6,000 workers um, should have been able to make it to the airport. And I think that that's, you know, and that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a culture. That's a management culture. That's how you run an airport. That's how you run an operation. And I, and I think that, you know, it, again, it's it's a question of you know don't give me excuses. Figure out you know what do you have to do to make sure that when these things happen, you don't go back and have a situation where the customer is again held at ransom for twelve hours sitting on an airplane. Right, and then then does it come down to money? Because there are certainly there are companies that put their employees in hotels, so they're close by that spend that money uh, to to do those things to deal with this to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, and I think that you know this is Christmas, right? This is Christmas week. Hotels are, you know, there's not much room left in any hotels. There's not much room left in, 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 in any restaurants or anything else. And I think, you know, when I, when I see an airline decide, you know, on, in the middle of this, this, this chaos, not to offer accommodation, not to offer meals, and to tell passengers your next flight's a week from now, um, you know, I think we've lost the, the, the notion of customer service. That you know that we you know the airlines and the airports are in the, the business of providing service to our customers, and passengers have paid good money to fly in Christmas, especially Christmas. And I think that that they really deserved a lot more 
you know, attention, TLC, as we say in the business, uh, than they got at the airport in Vancouver this week. I think there's a, a lot of people who slept on that airport floor who would or was stuck on those planes that, that would agree with you. Absolutely. John Gradick, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you on the show this morning. All right, Joseph, it's been a pleasure. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This is Mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Well, usually at this time, every Friday, the head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps joins the show to talk about the team and all things soccer. But with the season now over, our producer, Jason Manawis, spoke with soccer analyst and Whitecaps color commentator Colin Miller about the Whitecaps 2022 season. All right, so let's start with the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, My first question to you is, what were the highs for the Whitecaps this season? Well, quite clearly, the winning the Canadian Championship and, and the run that we had getting to the final. Uh, and then, of course, the atmosphere and, and just being there, having the privilege to commentate on it along with, with Aesop in the booth was was a magnificent experience. And uh, it just shows you the capability and the potential that the Vancouver Whitecaps have. Uh, and then also to beat Toronto in the final, that was a, a very, very special occasion. Anytime you can beat Toronto full stop is a, is a good thing. So that's definitely the high for us. There's no question. I think the signing of Kubas was massive for the Whitecaps as well. The later season form of Pedro Vite, I think that has to be a bit of a shining light as well. And, uh, you know, there's uh, the the continuing quality and and expertise of Ryan Gold. uh, You know, these are the the, the basis and the future of the club, hopefully, uh, moving forward. I thought... uh, you know, young Thomas Tassal acquitted himself well in, in difficult circumstances at times, you know, getting injured, uh, coming back from the injury and playing, you know, fairly well, fairly consistently for us, Jason. I think that those were the sort of bright lights. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, there were some high pr- good performances and then there were some form- performances that, that happen in football where you get heavily defeated. And uh, But I, I think overall... If I was to give the season a grade, it would probably be a, a six out of ten. Probably a six out of ten, and I think there's there's scope there to 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 do better next season, and 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 hopefully that will be the incentive for the players that the the way we finish the season for the most part, that has to be the minimum standard that we're going to expect next season. Now, before I ask you about you know what were some of the lows this season, I do want to ask about Coach Vanny. Um, he's he's on our show, as you know, on Mornings with Simi um, every Friday during the season. How do you think he did uh, this season in uh, managing this team? Well, you know, I've, I've, I get the privilege of going to watch the training sessions and, and Vanny is very open and very honest, as he is with, with everyone's interviews, um, that he, you know, he's, a, he's an incredibly intelligent man, incredibly uh, talented coach as well. Uh, the players and the staff at, at the Whitecaps think very, very highly of Vanny. I'm just, I, I just get a little bit frustrated, and it's very easy, Jason. Before I start, it's very easy to coach someone else's team. We're all experts the other side of the field, uh, and uh, and I, I can, uh, I've had this conversation with Vanny that 
I, I try to be as fair and as honest as I possibly can in my assessment of things. One of the frustrating things that I've had to, to deal with this season when I watch the White Cups is the changing of players uh, and not the same back three or back four every week. Uh, and that for me is a little bit frustrating because you want to see a little bit of continuity in the team. I, I And I, I base that on my own playing background. Uh, I wanted to know who I was playing beside week in and week out. So you get an understanding. And also from a coach's point of view, for me, if it's not broken, I don't want to fix it. But every manager is different. And Vanny, uh, I can see, I can understand uh, why he wants to move things around every week because he wants to try his best to maintain a big core group of players and, and have them ready and always have that carrot dangling for them so they can get the, ch the chance to get in the first team. The opposite applies, of course, if you're one of those sort of squad-type players and the team is settled, that you may never get a chance in there. So it's just getting the balance right. But uh, that would have been, you know, the, the, the most frustrating thing for me was, you know, the, I thought the team played better with a back four uh, than they did with a back three uh, all season long. But, you know, every manager, they pick their teams and, and it's it's up to them. They're all, they're, they're all uh, experienced people now, so they, they know the consequences if things go wrong. I did as well. And, uh, you know, that, that would have been the most frustrating thing for me from, from Vanny's point of view. Now, what were the lows of the season? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one because, um, well, it's, it's, it's easy and a difficult one because you don't want to be incredibly critical of, of things. As I said earlier, everybody's an expert when it's not your team, but certainly not qualifying for the playoffs. Uh, when I was the assistant coach with Tater Thordeson and Mike Salmon, uh, at the White Cups, you know, the mandate was to to get into the playoffs and win the Canadian Championship. Uh, and then to not make the playoffs, we had a good run at the end. We we gave it a, a good go at the end for sure. But we did, that's yeah. Yeah, we did. And and uh that that's a low. That's a low for a club, I believe, of the stature of the White Cups. Uh, and I believe the White Cups are, you know, a big club. They could be the, the big ticket item here in Vancouver. I genuinely believe that. We need to sign a few players, of course, but uh, I, you saw the reaction from from the team when when we uh, reached the final. The, the reaction of the, the White Cap supporters. So that that for me is the biggest one, of course. The the lack of discipline at times with Lucas Cavallini um, that was a bit of a low for me. Certainly the stomping and and so on, without being over the top with that. Uh, but it, it, there were times when we needed Lucas Cavallini. I'm a Lucas Cavallini fan when he's playing and he's in the right frame of mind. But at times, you know, when you're getting sent off, Jason, when you're getting putting your team under unnecessary pressure, that, that was frustrating for me as an ex-player and certainly as a manager when you want one of your big hitters to, 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 to really produce the goods. And at times Lucas did that, but there were times where he was incredibly frustrating to watch because uh, whether he had the weight of the team on his shoulders at those in those particular games, uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm I'm told behind the scenes he's a terrific young man, but on the field there were times that uh, he let the team down. He let his team down, especially as a a, a benchmark player for the team. This is mornings with Simi. 
Well, we know there is extreme cold weather, winter conditions, and there is freezing rain in some areas. So what does that mean for people who are homeless, people struggling to find shelter and some place to keep warm? Well, Guy Felicella is joining us now. Guy Felicella is a harm reduction advocate. And thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Thanks for having me, Jill. When you think, look at what's outside right now and the weather we're experiencing and when we see the cold temperatures, the sub-zero temperatures, what goes through your mind as far as people who are in that precarious position where they're in need of shelter? It's extremely punishing. I mean, it's just one of the, the hardest things I've ever had to endure, and I know that uh, people who are out there right now are just trying to do anything to stay warm. And, and unfortunately, once you, you know, get caught up in, you know, getting wet. Uh, it's very, very hard to, to get warm. Uh, again, with obviously limited spaces and capacity to access, uh, you know, warmer sites to to warm up. So, you know, it's, it's a big struggle for people on the street right now. And it's, uh, you know, sadly going to get worse. And one of the reasons that we like to talk to you about this and other issues as well when we're talking about addiction and overdose is is you do bring that perspective that many people talk about it but but don't have that firsthand knowledge. How dangerous is it and difficult, though, when you're in that position to actually try and find shelter? Yeah, it's, you know, you have to do things to survive. And that means sometimes, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I used to break into hotels and sleep in their bathrooms if I could, you know, obviously until I get caught and get barred from hotels or, you know, parkades. Uh, sometimes you, you just, you're not looking to, you know, steal anything. You're just, you're trying to stay warm. Uh, and, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, it's the same aspects of that where, you know, people are trying to survive. And, there's a lot of reasons why people don't access uh, shelters. You know, if you have pets, you can't bring them. Um, obviously, there's violence. There could be thefts. There could be an abusive partner that would know where you're at. So, you know, there's many multiple reasons of, of why people don't access shelters. And it actually shows that, um, you know, the social safety net, uh, they aren't a social safety net. They show what's, shelters actually show what's wrong with our social safety net. And I get what you're saying, and that that makes sense. But I think people might might hear that and think, "But hold on a second. And even when I made my work my way to work this morning, and I did, I saw people that were sleeping in entranceways, in doorways, and under blankets and under uh, umbrellas. But obviously, that's not going to even come close to keeping you warm in this weather. Um, what do you say to somebody though that would say, "But isn't it better even for a night to get out of the cold to take shelter in one of those places if the alternative is?" to be outside in minus seven weather yeah i mean of course it is but there's many challenges like i just stated that go with that especially people's belongings as well like you can't bring all your belongings in there where do they leave their belongings um you know so it's oftentimes what what we used to do is you know just try to stay up throughout the night um and looking for places to stay warm like stairwells or you know, abandoned buildings, and and then in the daytime, look for spots where you can access services to sleep. Like sometimes, uh, you know, at the supervised consumption site in the chill room, there was a refuge for me for about ten years, where I slept on the floor there during the day. Um, but in the in the cold winter months, you know, you you really just it's really hard to sleep, and I don't think people are really sleeping um, there as well either. It's and, 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 you know, honestly, too, you do anything to stay warm. And sometimes, uh, 
you know, using uh, drugs will also help those circumstances as well to numb the, the cold that you're feeling because it's really challenging for a lot of people. Well, and that was my next question is uh, how does it raise the danger then of overdose and uh, of, of that happening? Like you're saying, as, as maybe it's, it feels like a last resort to, to do anything to try and stay warm. Yeah, it's extremely high. Uh, you know, not only are we dealing with multiple complications in the winter, the health complications of just being cold, you get your body run down, but then also, too, with the illicit drug supply, if people are using that, they're using alone in certain areas that they're trying to stay warm. It's just a recipe for disaster, and I think even worse than, than the hot summer months. I've always said this, in, well, for myself anyway, the cold was the worst. And in Vancouver, it's just so bone-chilling cold um, that it's very, very hard to stay warm throughout the day. And so, you know, I always ask people, it's like, hey, if you look through your closets and you see some extra jackets, carry them around, put them in the trunk of your car. If you see somebody that needs a jacket, just, you know, hand it to them and say, hey, or help them put it on. Whatever you can do, gloves are a big thing for people's hands. You know, frostbite is a reality right now. Socks, whatever you got that's extra, just carry it around in your car. And if you see somebody somewhere that's looking cold, uh, offer it up to them. And I'm, I'm guarantee you're going you're gonna to make somebody's day. But we have to do something better. And what we're doing right now isn't working. And, you know, you can also... You know, we don't like seeing people struggling like this. Well, then let's push the government further to actually house people instead of, you know, just using a Band-Aid solution of a shelter. And then, you know, they have no place to go during the day again. Right. And, and Guy, I wanted to ask you about that because we have talked about this so much. And as we round out 2022 and we look at the number of overdose deaths, which continue to climb, and we look at what's happening with people who are homeless, what do you think should be the focus then as we head into 2023? Well, definitely, you know, I think it, we, have, we have multiple issues. We have a lot of issues that we've, we've neglected for the last couple of decades, but I think, you know, housing people um, in, in a place like, listen, before when we were unhoused, you know, most people would accept these deplorable SROs. I mean, now if you walk through some of these single room occupancies, you'd understand why people would not, I wouldn't access those either. And so um, those things have to change, but housing has to be uh, the number one issue for, especially for the downtown east side community, and also at the, the secondary, which is not so secondary, it's like go hand in hand, is that, you know, people need access to, you know, getting prescribed or safer supply avenues, uh, other through medical or outside of a medical model that they can access as well to save people's lives. But I mean, there's so many things we really have to work on. But if you look right now, like, how come we don't do this knowing that the wet winter is coming in, you know, May, that we don't get building these structures for people to have homes in? I just don't, I, I just can't understand. It's like we do the same thing over and over again. And then we rely on, you know, the public to actually, you know, come and, and do some philanthropy or get charity. Uh, charity isn't uh, changing the policies. Uh, it shouldn't be up to us. It should be up to the government. All right. Well, Guy, I know we will talk to you about this in the new year, but we'll leave it there for today. As always, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jill. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi.
Well, we know that residents of the South Coast are being told to brace for this latest bout of winter snow, freezing rain, icy roads, travel conditions less than ideal, you could say. We wanted to find out what is happening in Surrey. Ray Kerr joins us now, Manager of Engineering Operations at the City of Surrey. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Uh, Very well. How about you? I'm pretty good. Uh, How are things going as far as the roads in Surrey today? Um, well, um, we're very thankful that we didn't get the uh, you know 20 to 24 centimeters that were forecast. So we're very happy about that. Um, did receive about five centimeters across the city, um, and the freezing rain, um, as in most parts of the region, uh, started about two o'clock this morning. What kind of challenges does freezing rain bring? Because it is something we're not all that familiar with it in the Lower Mainland in Metro Vancouver. Does it does it offer more challenges for crews? Um, it does. Um, freezing, freezing rain, obviously, um, you know, it produces ice directly on the surface. So we address it with, with salt as quick as we can. Um, hope that that breaks it up so that people can drive on it without any issues. Um, at this point, we don't have any road closures or any uh, issues with respect to our priority one routes. All right. Well, that is good news, definitely. And like you said, not not quite as bad as what people were bracing for as far as what it was going to look like today. What does it do for crews? Or even though people are being told don't travel unless you absolutely have to, a lot of people will be on the roads today simply because it is a busy time of year. What do people need to remember then if they are trying to navigate the roads today? Well, I would suggest um, just make sure their vehicles are capable of winter driving um, and and that they are as well Um, give our plows plenty of room to do the work and give themselves lots of time Um, we address the routes as quick as we can but there may be certain routes that are slower than others and just for them to expect that that's all right and how are crews doing in that it has been a very busy few days uh, keeping ahead of this or trying to keep ahead of this how are your crews doing um, they're doing well. Um, you know, they've worked very hard. Um, they, they, I can I can probably speak for them that they're quite tired, um, but they'll continue to do what they need to do, and they're hoping for the rain uh, sooner rather than later as well, so they can get some much needed nest, much <laughs> needed rest. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's quite all right. I think it's one of the few times that people are actually looking forward to uh, there being a significant amount of rainfall. Does that bring challenges too, though, if we do see a lot of rain coming on really quickly? It does. Um, a lot of the CBs are currently covered in snow. So once it does switch over to rain, um, we'll have crews right through the weekend working to clear those catch basins um, to alleviate any possible flooding issues on the road. Um, we do ask if, if residents have a catch basin in front of their house, um, if they're able to clear it in advance of that, um, it, it helps everybody. Yeah, so if you see pooling water or see something that it's, it seems safe enough that you can go in and kind of help out? Correct, Absolutely. And until it does change to rain, you mentioned this as far as crews being out, is it a matter of salting and, and brining or what do you kind of keep doing as we're dealing with this or, or waiting for it, I suppose, to change to rain? Well, on the last night we had, you know, 55 pieces of equipment out. They'll continue straight through until um, it starts raining but they'll, and they'll continue to put down salt and plow the roads because um, we just don't know how much of the freezing rain we're going to receive. So until such time as the roads don't have any ice or slush on them, we'll keep doing that. 
And is it an issue right now until things warm up? I, I know in a lot of parts, because we had that kind of extended cold snap and, and continuing, uh, while we wait for things to warm up, is it a still a scenario in some of the smaller streets that we're dealing with sheets of ice with snow on top of it? Um, absolutely. Uh, we've tried um, our best to get to those local local roads so that people you know, can at least um, get out onto the uh, collectors and, and arterials. But once it starts snowing or freezing rain or what have you, all of our equipment goes back to our priority ones, which are arterials, major collectors, in order to make those as safe as possible. So it, it does create us um, some, some issues with respect to getting into those, those uh, smaller roads. And once we're in a scenario where there is that thick sheet of ice on a road and then snow on top of it, is there anything that can be done other than waiting for it to melt? Um, well, one, yes, waiting for it to melt, but we do give it a good coating of salt uh, for the salt to start breaking it up. Um, and, and of course, you know, the plow blades uh, also help. Um, there are certain areas of the city that we also put out graters and, and backhoes to try and break it up as well. So um, we get to it as quick as we can. Um, but like we said, I said earlier, uh, people just need to just take their time when they're, when they're out and about. Right. And I think people understand that a side street, even if it is in rough shape, that's not going to take the priority of the main roads and those arterial routes that are needed for people to, to get around. Um, Ray, we get calls every time we talk about crews being out and salting and sanding. Uh, people call in and, and question the, the method or, or why we use salt more than, say, pea gravel or sand. What is the difference as far as or, or the decision making that goes into how the ice and how the roads are treated? Well, we've always found that salt um, obviously breaks up the, the ice and the snow much quicker. Um, sand, although it uh, is abrasive, um, once a few vehicles go over, it gets embedded in that, that ice and snow and, and you're kind of back to square one. So we've always found that you know, giving a heavy dose of salt breaks it up much quicker than uh, using a, a sand or a sand-salt mixture. All right. And uh, I'm just curious, too. I know you mentioned crews are tired. That's completely understandable. How has this year compared to, to previous years when we've had snowfall? Um, I have, I've been dealing with this for probably over 30 years, and this is probably one of the worst Decembers I can remember. Um, we've had three, you know, in essence, major, major events and not much of a break in between. So I'm hopeful January is going to be a lot better than December was. <laughs> Uh, my fingers will be crossed. <laughs> I think you and a lot of people. I know people were thinking back to, to 2008, uh, and a lot of people will remember 1996 with the snow, but uh, I'm guessing those sure. ones will stick out with you as well? Absolutely. They were bad. <laughs> um, this is just, um, for me, this is bad just simply because of, one, the timing of the original storm that we had first, um, and then just not much of a break in between these ones. Right. And uh, yeah, like you said, a lot of people then hoping for or uh, looking forward to warmer, the, the temperature rising and that rain hitting. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. And, and Ray, just before I let you go, I know, I know you mentioned this, but letting people know again, um, with the advisory to if you don't need to be on the streets, can you remind people, though, if they do see, say, plows or, or salting trucks, again, how far away should they stay from them? I'll give them plenty of room. Um, Try your best never to pass a plow on the right-hand side because that's generally where they're plowing the snow. Um, but, yeah, give them plenty of room. Be patient. Um, they're trying to move as quick as they can. And at the end of the day, they're, they're plowing the road to make it safer for them. So, uh, yeah, it would be great if you could uh, remind people of that. 
All right. Never uh, never uh, too much reminders of that to keep everybody safe on the roads. Ray, thank you so much. I know it's been a very busy, busy time for you, but thanks so much for making the time for us this morning. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's find out what's happening with ambulance service in BC. And as you've been hearing on the news, a bit of a worrying situation, according to the paramedics union, saying as of last night, about 62 ambulances were out of service without staff. And of course, with this weather and what we're seeing on the streets, increased service calls to ambulance. Well, Troy Clifford is the president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC and joins us on the line now. Troy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on this morning. Uh, let's talk a bit about that situation with that many ambulances that were out of service with no staff. Uh, how concerning is that? It's very concerning. Uh, you know, we've been talking about it uh, over a lo- far too long, obviously. But, uh, you know, when we're leading into the, the holiday seasons, we're really worried about our out-of-service levels when with ambulances parked with no staff. But particularly when we're seeing the conditions that, uh, you know, we're going to be seeing over the next couple of days, the holiday season is traditionally a, a time where we see increased calls, um, you know, particularly around mental health and, and uh, addiction when people are isolated, but also around medical calls such as uh, strokes and, and heart attacks. It's just uh, it's just one of the things that we always see. So we're always uh, going into the hallways worried about the, you know, the increased call volumes. Um, but uh, particularly over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a progression of uh, out of service that is a little higher than normal. Um, and uh, that's very concerning, obviously. And why is that, though, with the this ambulances out of service without staff? What is leading to that? Well, it's really uh, it's really primarily focused on our ability to recruit and retain paramedics that we've been talking about for quite some time. And it's uh, the bottom line is we're just not competitive in uh, against other paramedic services across Canada and uh public safety like police and fire or health uh, from a wages and benefits perspective. And that's just the reality in a human resources uh, situation. And this has been progressing for years, but uh, particularly been highlighted over the last year. Um, Just uh, when people have choices, they're not coming into our profession, unfortunately. Um, And that's what's uh, really exasperating the situation we're in today. Uh, Can you talk a little bit as well, as you mentioned, with the weather like this, it's not a big surprise that there will be more calls to uh, and for an ambulance. I understand, though, last night there were a lot of calls in the queue and that was a concern as well. How many calls were in the queue and, and what does that mean for people who are waiting for an ambulance? Yeah, so at the peak times, I was advised, and it was reported last night, that we had um, just over 90, 92 or 96 uh, at the peak times last evening were in the queue. So that means calls that were waiting to be dispatched to ambulances with no ambulances to to be dispatched. So that was people waiting for an ambulance, uh, um, and that could be any period of time. Um, so the, the lower priority of a call, the more it gets bumped down and the more of a delay, unfortunately. So there's a number of factors last night. Obviously, the weather uh, conditions, the out-of-service that we were just talking about, and the no, not enough staff. But uh, I was also reported that there was significant uh, hospital delays where we weren't able to hand off patients because of the, the pure volume in the emergency department. And we know that because of the other big factors going on right now. We're into one of the worst flu seasons. Um, you know, we know about children and RSV, but that's happening in every emergency department. So when when you see emergency departments filling up, um, you're also seeing that in the situation with uh, with ambulances. They're usually on the same sort of trajectory. 
Um, and then, you know, hospitals are trying to gear down over the holidays for surgeries and that. So less beds. Um, traditionally, that's how that works. Uh, so it's kind of a it's it's one of those seasons that is really tough on uh, emergency services and healthcare. Um, and we try and do our best, but uh, it's definitely putting pressure on that. And you know, it's gut wrenching for the paramedics when they can't do the work they're doing, or the dispatchers see those calls. And uh, that the numbers we saw last night, you mentioned, are are at the high ends of things that we haven't seen in quite some time. But uh, you know. I think you reported on the weekend we've seen those same sort of numbers, and that's very worrisome that we're seeing it on a Thursday evening, which traditionally is not a, a unusual night for anything. Uh, so if there was, though, at, at the peak time, there were 96 callers that were on those phones waiting for an ambulance. How are they then triaged as far as yeah. there must have been some calls there that, that were urgent, that needed medical help right away. So how do you triage 96 callers and make sure people get the help they need? Yeah, so just to explain a little more, that's 92 calls that have already been triaged and waiting for ambulances to be dispatched. So they've already called, got assessed, and we know what level of priority they are by the medical emergency medical dispatcher. So they're just physically calls that are holding that to have no ambulances to go to. So they're based on a, a robust medical priority dispatch system where they assess your conditions, your symptoms, and that and prioritize. So you're absolutely right. The highest of acuity calls, the heart attack, short of breath, are the top priority. And then as you work down, potentially falls and uh, things that have less body or not dangerous body areas or life and limb threatening become lower priorities. And those are the ones that can have extended waits. Uh, you know, we, ha- we have delays on the most urgent calls, obviously, but uh, the, the lesser priority calls that still require an ambulance are uh, delayed as well. And that can uh, really have serious impacts on out- outcomes. And if this is a case of, like you said, recruitment, this isn't, we're not talking about staff couldn't get to work or, or staff were sick. This is a lack of staff that is leading to this. I know negotiations are continuing right now, but what does this say then for uh, the rest of the holiday season or the rest of this, this wintry season where you are going to see that increase in calls? Yeah, so there's the, the factor of sick and flu, I mean, that affects paramedics and dispatchers just like everybody. So we have numbers of those people that physically couldn't get to work or whatnot, but that's generally not the situation in these. Um, we definitely have our percentage of sick paramedics. We can't have paramedics and dispatchers sick uh, looking after patients. So that is a, a factor, but that was not an extreme factor last night or uh, that we're seeing. Um, they're, they're consistent with any other healthcare profession or emergency service. So those are definitely not things. But what it means going into the holidays is that uh, we're going to continue to see pressures that are going to have these numbers. Um, and that's going to really take its toll on, on paramedics and dispatchers, but more importantly, our patients. So I think just one of the couple things that, uh, you know, that's gut-wrenching for paramedics. But one of the key things I think we want to just remind the public is really look after each other, check in on on your loved ones and friends and family, but making sure with these conditions, the cold and that, that people are looked after. uh, But also to make sure that if you look at alternate uh, care, if you don't need to go to the emergency department or need an ambulance for interventions, then, you know, talk to your physician, your pharmacy or 811. Um, But if in doubt at all, don't hesitate to call and uh, everybody will do their best to look after our patients. And Troy, just before I let you go, I mentioned negotiations are continuing. How are things going as far as those negotiations and uh, talks at the table? Yeah, so um, things were not going well up till the, as you know, last Thursday, Friday, we were able to bring in Vince Reddy to assist us in trying to bridge some of the 
um, gaps on the stuff that we've been talking about, service delivery and uh, and wages and uh, benefits. And uh, we met with him again, yes, oh, sorry, Wednesday, a uh, full day late, went wait, late Wednesday night. And uh, through that, we were able to make some progress on collaboration. The, the, the position on, that the Employers Association had had, had changed and they were in um, a little more forthcoming to uh, with I guess with the assistance of a esteemed, esteemed uh, arbitrator like Vince Reddy, he only has uh, good ways to bring people together, and he did, he was able to do that. So we've committed to uh, work more over the holidays together on some of these proposals, and then uh, he's uh, coming back with us on January fourth, fifth, and sixth. So I can say we're cautiously optimistic that we've made some progress, and uh, we're on a path. I think there's a mutual commitment that we're on a path to get a resolution to this so we can get on with the fixing the ambulance service and, and not have to deal with this stuff that we're talking about because that's a key component is getting a proper deal that addresses those issues. Well, that is good news because he wouldn't stick around if he didn't think that there was some hope of finding that common ground. So that is a positive note. Absolutely. He would not, uh, uh, he's a busy man and he would not uh, be around if he didn't see there was some hope. And he, you know, he's a, he knows the ambulance service very well, and he's uh, very passionate about uh, doing the right thing for uh, workers and, and patients and that. So uh, we're just proud that he's helping us out. And uh, I think uh, with his involvement, it'll is one more positive step. All right, Troy, thanks for your time this morning. No problem. You have a great day, and thank you to your listeners. Uh, be safe over the next couple of days for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. 